The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Is that your portfolio? I'm meeting someone who wants to see my work. Crap. 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 Ah. Now that's good work. The skulls. The bodies. You give it all such a glow. I don't know if it's art, but I like it. Different artists can mean different things to different people, and the very definition of art itself is fluid. Robert Coates, a renowned critic for The New Yorker, once called the work of this artist, quote, mere unorganized explosions of random energy and therefore meaningless. But he wasn't talking about the work of Michael Bay. Robert Coates made that criticism regarding the works of Jackson Pollock. Pollock was an artist whose forays into modern art, especially with drip paintings, challenged audiences' perceptions of the definition of art. Today, Pollock is considered a visionary, with his work considered an example of the finest modern art. On this episode of ARC, I'm going to examine the style of filmmaker Michael Bay to question what audiences expect from different pieces of work, and whether or not criticisms are warranted if those expectations aren't met. This is ARC. God bless television. To the movies, to good movies, to every possible kind. Make it so. Where are my dragons? Yo, Adrian! Not so for you! Welcome to Earth. Stick around. No slices for white. Clever girl. And they mostly come at night. Mostly. I'm 37? Are you the key master? I'm Omar. Who the hell are you? Hi everybody and welcome to Arts Review and Commentary. My name is Omar Latiri and thanks for listening. I've been receiving a lot of great feedback from a previous episode, the Definitive Star Wars Podcast, and I encourage you all to use that episode as an example of what this show is about. Send links to the episode, and don't forget to shop Amazon at artsreviewandcommentary.com. Larry called. He's got another buyer for the Jackson Pollock in the wings. Do you want it, yes or no? Is it a good representation of a spring period? Um, no, the springs is actually the neighborhood in East Hampton where he lived and worked, not so? spring like the season. I think it's a fair example. Um, I think it's incredibly overpriced. I need it. Buy it. Store it. On November 12, 2013, Jackson Pollock's number 16 sold for $32,645,000 at Christie's, New York. Other paintings of his have sold for even more than that. If you're not an art student, then the seemingly random splatters on canvas would beg the question, why? Why is the work of this artist worth that much to collectors? One common phrase we've heard is, my kid could paint that. In fact, there was a 2007 art documentary entitled exactly that. In it, a four-year-old daughter of an amateur painter is thought to have produced Pollock-like paintings, with her pieces being sold for hundreds of thousands of dollars. But when filmed during her painting sessions, her work displayed some inconsistencies. But 
what exactly constitute inconsistencies in abstract expressionism. Can one really say, hmm, I think this piece of art is less valuable because that splatter should have been over there, or that group of blue dots should be gray. If you're a trained art critic, then yeah, you could say that. But to the untrained eye, it's all just mess. Oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. Oh my God, you're Michael Bay. Oh my God, I am Michael Bay. I love all your movies. Armageddon was epic. Oh, that is, that's a good word. I like that word. The Animal Crackers? Hated that scene. Really? Hated that scene. Loved it. You an actress? Oh, I did a play in junior high, but that's it. Shame, you'd look so good walking away from an explosion in slow motion. <laughs> a couple of years ago, I read an article on Cracked.com entitled, Six Dumb Celebrities Who Are Way Smarter Than You Think. Number one on the list was Michael Bay, and indeed, the entry referenced abstract expressionism as the closest equivalent to Bay's style. Let's break this down and see the similarities, shall we? Now it's time for a breakdown. People unfamiliar with modern art would look at a Jackson Pollock painting and only see a mess of colors and dots. There's no subject. There might not even be an up or down with the painting. But a person trained in art might take a closer eye to the way that painting was accomplished. Each splatter, each stroke, each color was specifically chosen to engage the eye. Upon closer inspection of a Pollock painting, one might actually be able to see the craftsmanship and deliberation with the placement of each set of drops. And no one can deny that Pollock's work is definitive, unique, identifiable, and groundbreaking. Someone might ask, but what is he trying to say? To which one might say, Pollock might not be trying to say anything definitive. And I think Michael Bay is the same way. Michael Bay presents Explosions! Consider this. Bayhem, the chaotic, quick-cut style of colors, sound, motion, and destruction that is so prevalent in each of Michael Bay's films, is probably the end, not the means to the end. Each of Bay's movies exists to showcase nothing more than to put visually and auditory snippets on screen to stimulate the senses. When you examine each shot in a Michael Bay movie, you can see the detail and craftsmanship that goes into each frame. But if you take a step back and see the whole, there's no cohesion, no definitive subject to follow. It's all a jumbled mess of expertly produced chaos. Now tell me, if Jackson Pollock is considered a great artist when his paintings have no subject and no title, why should the film equivalent of Pollock be derided? The answer to that lies in the whole purpose of arts and entertainment. Whenever we read a book, or watch TV, or see a movie, we have certain expectations of our choice of medium and story. When we pick up a mystery, we expect clues to be written into the story so that we won't feel cheated when the detective solves the mystery. If we watch an action movie, we expect fights and well-choreographed action. For thrillers and suspense, we expect to be lulled into a state of anxiety and fear. If those expectations aren't delivered, then it would very negatively affect the outcome of the experience. 
So if you go into an Indiana Jones movie expecting magic and mysticism and you get instead vine-swinging Shia LaBeoufs and aliens, you're going to be pretty disappointed. It sucked! It's similar with modern art. No one expects modern art to reflect anything real, and to some, it's just a mishmash of colors and shapes. You can stare at a piece of modern art for hours and still not be able to make heads or tails of it, but depending on the work, you can expect to have an emotional reaction. Sometimes the emotion is confusion, but sometimes the emotion can be admiration of the artist's skill to be able to manipulate paint or clay or metal. With modern art and abstractism, the idea that there is a subject in the work is optional. It's all about how the piece of art makes the artist and the audience feel. And it's not limited to painting or sculpting. Abstractism can find its way into such art forms as dance and literature. Anyone who has ever seen a David Fincher or Werner Herzog movie knows that those filmmakers don't follow conventional story structure. But as I alluded to before, when you go see a Fincher or Herzog movie, you're not necessarily expecting convention. So what does that mean for filmmakers like Michael Bay? An 18-wheeler spins out of control and it's all like, brush in this huge tanker full of diamonds. Crawl, crawl. Those aren't ideas. Those are special effects. I don't understand the difference. I know you don't. Get him out of here. You have to understand something. My feelings on Michael Bay and his work are decidedly mixed. Some I've enjoyed thoroughly, like Bad Boys, The Rock, and the first Transformers. Others I've detested, like Bad Boys 2 and the last three Transformers movies. And others I've enjoyed and detested at the same time, like The Island, Pain and Gain, and especially Armageddon. So why would I keep on watching this man's work? Well, to answer that, I need to tell you what my experiences have been with this filmmaker. I'm a bad boy. Bad boys, bad boys. What you gonna do? What you gonna do? Michael Bay displayed his talent for directing action in his first feature movie, 1995's Bad Boys. The kinetic way he made use of the camera and slow motion for something as simple as people standing up made people pay attention to what was happening on the screen. In addition to quick cutting, one of his signature moves was having the camera appear to circle around two rooms during a gunfight, making it seem as if the action took place during one whole take. While the story itself was nothing out of the ordinary, and the writing was not particularly cerebral, it was fun to simply watch. The Rock featured Sean Connery as a freed, imprisoned relic of the Cold War. Basically, James Bond brought into the present day. Again, plenty of great action with over-the-top performances and substandard writing and storytelling. Even though I enjoyed the movie very much, there was something that I suspected about his filming style, but I didn't put my finger on it until his next film, Armageddon. The summer of 1998 saw two films about an extraterrestrial object about to collide with Earth, Deep Impact and Armageddon. 
Deep Impact focused more on the realistic consequences of human behavior on the planet, and as a result, took itself a bit more seriously than Armageddon. Armageddon, on the other hand, wanted nothing more than to be an action-adventure. What was puzzling about this action movie was the lengths the movie went to inject serious emotion into the story. We were meant to feel sorrow for Will Patton's character as he says goodbye to his son, while at the same time feel superficial humor at Michael Clark Duncan's character's fear of flying. The superficial humor and effects seemed to be in conflict with the attempts to evoke genuine sorrow and patriotism. I hated the hamminess and forced attempts at pathos, but I couldn't help but enjoy watching the action and effects. In the end, audiences everywhere agreed that Michael Bay was all style, little substance. So you can imagine the reaction when he brought his signature style to retelling the story of Pearl Harbor. I miss you more than Michael Bay missed the mark. When he made Pearl Harbor 2001's Pearl Harbor cemented Michael Bay as a joke of a director whose movies didn't offer anything but explosions and destructions at the expense of any semblance of story or character. One of my favorite reviewers, Roger Ebert, described the movie as, quote, a two-hour movie squeezed into three hours about how on December 7th, 1941, the Japanese staged a surprise attack on an American love triangle. Bay took an event from our history where thousands of real, actual lives were lost and turned it into a spectacle that was purely superficial. The forced pathos that came in Armageddon was also present in Pearl Harbor and that style seemed to trivialize that infamous day. I don't think historians, patriots, and audience members have forgiven Michael Bay, and it wasn't until 2007 that I had a good time watching a Michael Bay movie. When we come back, how to watch Michael Bay's Transformers movies. This is Snake. Do you read me, Otacon? Loud and clear, Snake. Did you listen to the latest episode of the Gaming Marathon on the Realm Network? Of course. They really know their stuff about gaming, especially that Asud guy. Yeah, but that Chirac guy is a real jerk. I don't like him. Regardless, their reviews are spot on and they tell it like it is. That's for sure. What, what happened, Snake? Were you spotted? Nah, it's just Lowell Melser crying about the O's again. Ah, uh, whew. Close call. I better continue the search for Metal Gear, but keep listening to the Gaming Marathon each week. You got it, Snake. New every Monday afternoon right here on the Realm Network. Are you Samuel James Whitwicky, descendant of Archibald Whitwicky? Yeah? My name is Optimus Prime. That was from Michael Bay's 2007 movie, Transformers, with Peter Cullen reprising his role as the voice of Optimus Prime. As I had mentioned on a previous episode, Peter Cullen's work as Optimus Prime in the 1980s cartoon was one of the most inspirational voices of Generation X. When it was learned that there would be a live-action Transformers movie, the internet clamored for Cullen to reprise his role. Cullen's return, 
combined with the kinetic energy of Bayes' direction and the silliness of the source material made Transformers exactly what it should have been, a cartoon brought to life. Yeah, certain things didn't make any sense and there was needless destruction, but like I said, it was a cartoon brought to life. Additionally, it's one of the very few movies that features the US Air Force actually doing its job well something this airman appreciated very much. We need air support and we need it now. Roll in strike package Bravo on unknown target. I authenticate Tango Whiskey at time 0300 Zulu. Attention all aircraft, this will be a danger close fire mission. Weapons, I just get a call from Falcon Ops. Who's closer to Killbox 1 Alpha? Send the Hawks, sir. Okay, send the Hawks over to Killbox 1 Alpha. It's a danger close at 300 feet. Switch the Hawks to Killbox 1 Alpha, 300 feet, danger close. Friendly's in the area. Seventh man team, north of Orange Smoke. Proceed killbox 1 Alpha, gauge hostile. Sounds exciting, right? Well, it was. And I was looking forward to the next installment, Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. And when that horrid mess came out, I was shocked at how awful I felt watching that movie. It wasn't just the casual racism, or the errors in geography, or the poor dialogue, or that there was a Transformers with balls hanging between his legs. It was that the narrative made no sense. Characters, or should I say special effects, appeared and disappeared with no explanation, and there was no focus of any type. Even fight scenes were jammed so full of action and movement that it was impossible to tell what was happening at any given time. It was like reading a book that was one constant run-on sentence and no structure at all. King illegal forest, two pig wild, kill in it is. What? It was while watching the third Transformers movie when I asked, does Michael Bay care anything at all about story structure? And I realize that the answer is no, he doesn't. And that's when I connected the dots. If I want to enjoy myself watching a Michael Bay movie, I'd have to approach it the same way I would approach anything else without conventional structure, like abstract art or jazz. But that still doesn't really answer the question I posed earlier on. Namely, why would I keep on watching this man's work? Michael Bay's movies may have averaged only 38% on Rotten Tomatoes, but his movies have grossed more than $5.7 billion worldwide. I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't understand why audiences all over the planet flock to his theaters to see his movies. It's too dismissive to say that the world is full of dumb people that are easily entertained. If we consider saying that Georgia O'Keeffe's work resembles vaginas, and that's considered praise, then unorganized explosions of random energy is praise enough for Michael Bay. The entire point of music and art and stuff like that is to have it be personal for the individual. So if somebody sees it the way they see it and nobody else sees it like that, it doesn't matter because that's how they like read into it. That's it for this episode of ARC. Stay tuned for the next episode where I'll give my ratings of all the movies I watched in 2014. Like the page on Facebook at facebook.com slash ARC reviews 
Follow the show on Twitter at Arc Reviews and shop on Amazon at artsreviewandcommentary.com. My name is Omar Latiri, and this is Arc. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network. Why don't you?